All right. Oh, there it is. Good. All right. Cards on the table. It's been a hard week. And I hope... I hope that if you are in the same boat that I am, that, uh, that life has been messy and difficult and you're running on fumes since Friday or so, that, that each one of us can, can understand what God wants to teach us this morning here through this text. So let's just bow and let's, uh, let's commit this time to God. God, we're about to open Scripture. These are your words. These are not man's words. You have spoken these things for us so that we might understand who you are, how we ought to live, how we ought to conduct ourselves. And so, God, these are, these are serious things that we're about to read because they come directly from you. And so would we understand that? Would we submit to your leadership, to your wisdom, and to your truth. God, would you help us understand the text, make it clear to us, would you guard my words and thoughts, help us to not stray from what it says here, but help us to understand the things that you have written to us. Amen. So if you're, if you're visiting here this morning, or, or perhaps if you weren't here last week, last week we started a, a new series through the book of 1 Timothy. So you can flip there, and we're going to be kind of in the last half of chapter 1 uh, this morning. But as you're going there, and for those who weren't there, I'm just going to give you uh, some context as to why we're going through this, and exactly what we talked about last week, and, and kind of how that plays into this morning's text. A number of months ago, uh, our leadership decided that we wanted to uh, become very intentional in discipleship. Uh, we want to we be a church that disciples others so that they can disciple others, so they can disciple others, and so on. Uh, we believe, as we discussed last week, that that's the great commission given to each one who is a follower of Christ. That we are to go into the world and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded. And so we wanted to, in, in this new year for 2020, we wanted to figure out a way how we could kind of teach that from a very practical way. And so we entered into this study through 1 Timothy. Scholars often call uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, actually, as uh, kind of a mentoring manual for us. As Paul has written this uh, both to Timothy directly, but also to the church in Ephesus. And he's written both this letter and the next letter as this beautiful way for us to read and understand and look at it and go, and that's what it's like to invest in somebody. That's what it's like to encourage somebody and to hold them in esteem and, and, to, and to come alongside them and help them through life. And, and really, that's what discipleship is. There's this belief so often that to disciple someone means you have to be the, the, amongst the most elite of the spiritually mature. That's hogwash. Sorry, is that a bad word? No. Uh, it's garbage. It's totally inaccurate. And all it does is it makes us read scripture and go, oh, I can't possibly do that. Somebody else will do that. Like I mentioned last week, according to the Barna Research Group, is the vast majority of Christians say they have never been discipled by someone, but almost all of them say they wish they would have been. There's this desire for connection, for 
living life together. If you go into the Greek of this idea of the Great Commission, um, this therefore go into the world, really what it means is as you are going. There's an assumption in your life that you are going towards Christ and that you will bring others in that journey with you. That might mean that they're actually more mature than you are spiritually. We have this idea of following means that everyone behind or everyone is behind us and more immature than us. And I just don't think that that's a correct way to look at it. Is Timothy was a very, very godly man, but Paul took him under his wing and he wanted him to, to preach and to teach and to show people the gospel. And, and so he writes this letter so that we can see what it's like to do that. And our hope by the end of this series is, uh, actually, we're going to start to unpack this as we get to the about chapter 3. We're going to show you that the leaders of our church have committed into going into a discipleship relationship. And then we're going to ask that each one of us would enter into a disciple relationship with other people. It doesn't mean you have to have everything figured out. It doesn't mean you have to be a spiritual giant. It means that you have to be willing to be authentic and vulnerable and honest with people. Because that's when we're going to grow. So that's why we have come here. Uh, this is just a little side note, but I just want to mention this because this is really helpful for me this week. What are practical ways in which we can grow in our faith? Well, obviously reading the Bible and Scripture, but I was visiting with someone this week, and we were kind of talking about how sometimes we come across difficult things in the Bible, and, and, and where do we go to figure that out? Maybe we have some people we can ask questions who, who have a little bit more knowledge or understanding, but what if we don't? Well, Here's a great resource for you, so you can write this one down. Is There's a group called the Bible Project, and, and they're an excellent group. It's two guys, one theologian who studies original language uh, and is very, very intellectual, and one guy who's very practical. And he asks questions to the other one, and it's just a conversation that runs back and forth, and they deal with a lot of difficult things in Scripture uh, in a really biblical, godly way that will really, really help you. And so that's just one resource that I just want to give to you. Parents, for your kids, there's YouTube videos. You just look it up, The Bible Project, and they'll walk you through all kinds of really good stuff. There's a podcast that has, I forget how many episodes, but it's, uh, it's quite a few. And, and I'm currently listening to one on the Holy Spirit, and it's like three and a half hours over three or four different sessions. Uh, and if you're like me, that's a long time. I preach because I can't listen, right? Like that's, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, the ADD part of me is like, I can't listen to anybody that long. And yet I listened to one and a half episodes straight, about an hour and a half where I was just enthralled and so interested and so eager to, to figure out what they were teaching, where they were going. And, and, and it had me opening the Bible and going, oh yeah, okay, this is really good. This is interesting. And so I just want to encourage you with that, that there are excellent resources that all you got to do is on your computer, on your phone, on your tablet, whatever it is, just to, Look up some of these really, really good resources. and It'll really, really help you in your growth. So last week, we started through 1 Timothy. We went from 1 to 11, and, and we looked at this idea that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy saying, look, there's some teaching that's come in to the church. We don't know exactly what it was. There's some, some indication, and we talked about that last week, so I don't want to get into that this week. But there is some, some speculative teaching coming in that was dangerous. Paul writes this to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you've you got to deal with this. You can't allow these things to happen, because if you do, all it's going to do is create disunity within the body. But we looked at verse 5 as kind of the key in this. I'm going to read this for us. It says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Is Paul takes time to talk through Timothy to say, you can't let this teaching come in. It's wrong and it needs to be dealt with. But if you don't deal with it with love and sincere faith and clean heart, you're missing the point. Paul writes in another place in Corinthians, he's going through kind of some of the spiritual gifts and, and he says, if I have, I'm just going to paraphrase it into a kind of modern day, if I have more wisdom than anybody in the world has, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. We need to love one another and we need to consider this, that God has created each person in God's image. And so the person that, that is driving us crazy that is beating us down, that is abusing us perhaps uh, physically, perhaps emotionally, whatever it might be, is God's created that person in his image and he loves them desperately. And so when we come alongside, everything is meant to be corrective in a restorative way. And so if, if you have someone in your mind that you're thinking right now that you're dealing with, someone that you're very frustrated with, remember that God sent Jesus to the cross for that person, for that person. Not not just for me, but for the people that I can't stand sometimes. And perhaps that will change my opinion and my heart towards them, and I'll start to see them as God sees them. And then when I go to correct them uh, from wrong teaching or divisive topics, it's not because I'm right and they're wrong. It's because I love them desperately, and I want all of us to be in relationship with Christ together, united. So that's the, that's the main point of what Paul has taught Timothy. And then, and then verses 8 to 11, he says, now how are we going to use the law in doing this? And so he actually talks about the law being a way to point us of our need to Christ. And then after we come to Christ, how we can honor God with our actions. And so it's just this beautiful, beautiful text that really helps us understand how to be a Christian. So let's read verses 12 to 17 this morning, and this is going to be the bulk of our text. It says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Last week I gave you a quote from Matt Moore, and he said this, is that Paul writes this letter to Timothy to show Timothy that Christians are meant to be the best apologetic to the world. So in other words, the church is meant to represent Christ in such a way that the world sees it and they go, I, I need that. I need what's, what, what you have. And they maybe can't quantify it at first, and they'll need to go through Scripture and, and, and to have conversation to get there, but they'll look at that and they'll go, I need that. You have, you have peace. Why do you have peace in the midst of turmoil? 
Why do you have hope in the midst of struggle and pain? How can you have a good attitude in the midst of disease and suffering? And all of those things we can point back to Christ. We are meant to be the best apologetic that exists so the world can see Christ. So if last week's text was on how to correct false teaching and turn them towards the gospel, uh, this text, if we kind of said it this way, the main idea here is this, an example of the effect of the true gospel in our lives. What we read here, Paul kind of takes just this little sidetrack to talking about himself and what's happened in him, and we see in this text the radical and powerful transformation that comes from the gospel. That's what this is about, and that's how we need to interpret and understand this. Paul says the gospel should radically, radically change us. Like I said in my prayer, is, is these words that I just read, these are not my words. Those words that we read are God's. And so we live in a, in a time now where, and Smonga loves to do this. My son loves to do this. We go to the, the Canmore Library, uh, and, and he picks up the, uh, the books for dummies. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's basically a self-help of how you deal with things. Now, his might be calculus for dummies, and mine is not. But um, that's not the point. Is He is looking at these books and going, oh, this teaches me how to do this and this and this and this, so this is good, this is what I want. And there are loads of those available to us, but there's only one book that's divinely written that can radically change our entire life. The Scriptures. From God to radically radically change us. However, for us to be radically transformed by the gospel, we need to understand the gospel. And so Paul gives uh, Timothy several ideas here, but I want to focus on three things. First, that the gospel starts with God. Second, that the gospel can change anyone, even Paul. And third, that God will use us to show this gospel to the world. So Paul begins by saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. Paul begins by thanking God that he could even be part of this declaring of Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord. A correct understanding of the gospel will always show us that the gospel is about God, not about us. It is written for us so that we might understand who God is, who Jesus was, what salvation is, and how we are to live. So it is written for us, but it's about God. And so what that should do is when we, when we read through Scripture and we read that, that God sent Jesus to this world, that he would suffer and be beaten and crucified on the cross to show his undying love for us. That there's nothing that God would not do to save me and to save you. If that doesn't bring us to our knees in humility, then what will? I think sometimes, and and I'll speak just for me here. Because I grew up in the church and I don't really know a time in my life where I, I wasn't a Christian. Sometimes I can forget just how depraved I really am. Sometimes I can think I'm actually pretty good. And sometimes I forget and I actually think that maybe I deserve God's love and his grace. And then I read through scripture and I'm reminded that the law exists to show me 
Not only am I not worthy, the only thing I am worthy of is eternity in hell. And when I see that, what that does is that drives me to my knees, not because I'm so disappointed or upset, but because I realize that God in his mercy went, no, I'm going to make a way for you. I'm going to make a way for you so that you can come back to me and you can live with me in eternity and there's nothing that you can do but I'm going to do everything. I'm going to send Jesus to the cross so that you can have a chance at redemption. If we understand that, if we understand the gospel is about God, first and foremost, we'll start to see ourselves correctly. A.W. Tozer said it that way. Is if A correct understanding of ourselves starts with a correct understanding of God. When we see him for who he is, we see us for who we are, and we get smaller and smaller and smaller, and God becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the crazy part of all of that is then salvation comes to us who deserve nothing but death. So some people might argue that we feel so inferior next to this God, and how could, how could we ever kind of resolve that? That's the beautiful part is we are completely inferior next to God, and yet God loves us so desperately that he sent Jesus. So the gospel begins with God. Paul sees that, and he says this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He, he kind of gives his past and says, here's, here's who I was. So the gospel has radically changed Paul, because that's not who he is anymore. And so this begs the question then, is what are the things that you struggle with? What are the things that I struggle with? What are the areas in my life that, that are difficult for me to submit to God, that are difficult to me to let go of, that are difficult for me to say, God, you can have this. I don't need it anymore. The further we grow in our understanding of who God is and, and, and what the gospel is, the more we'll be able to give up those things. Now, as Paul evaluates himself here, as he goes through the text and kind of explains some of this, I think he recognizes he still struggles with some of those things. He still struggles. Um, and so maybe if you think of it this way, is, is maybe you still struggle with anger. Maybe you still struggle with, with lust. Maybe you still struggle with pride. Is when we come to faith, yes, we're radically changed, but that doesn't mean that we all of a sudden become perfect. If it were that way, then perhaps we would just get raptured straight to heaven. But rather, it's about a life of maturity and, and gathering other saints, other brothers and sisters in Christ around us, and living out the gospel together and helping each other grow. The second thing that Paul is saying here is that nobody is outside of God's saving power. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This word overflowed here is actually a, a really interesting word in the Greek. Um, it, it, calls, it says this. Uh, it's got the, i got to read it. Sorry, it's been that kind of a week. Uh, this, the word that's added to it is, is how we uh, translate hyper. So Paul's basically saying this, that God's grace was super flowing over him. And I think that's really interesting is, is to realize that God's grace isn't just poured out to us just a little bit. It's poured out to us so that it's, it's super flowing, it's saturating, it's coming over every part of our lives because there is nothing 
outside of God's ability to be gracious to us. Paul says, even though I was this, even though I was violent, a blasphemer, a persecutor, I was insolent, even though all of that, Christ's grace overflowed with me. He says this, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. That phrase comes up five times through 1 Timothy. This is the first time. And so I think it's important when we read something that patterns like that, that we see. What does it say? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Perhaps um, perhaps you are reminded of what Jesus said. Mark 2.17, he says it this way. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has come into the world to offer salvation to sinners. So as soon as we think maybe we deserve grace or we deserve God's love, we don't understand the gospel. Once we see the depravity of our own heart the way that Paul is starting to hear, we realize just how good and how wonderful his grace is. So he says it this way, I am the foremost. So what is, what is Paul saying? Like, is he actually categorically saying that nobody in the world has sinned more than I've sinned? Let me read to you from commentaries because, again, they're a lot smarter than I am. Commentators Leah and Griffin write this. Concerning himself, Paul indicated that he stood foremost in the ranks of sinners. His, his use of this Greek word protos, or worst, literally means first. It does not merely suggest the idea of first in order, but in the concept of the most prominent or leading. Paul sincerely saw himself as the leading sinner among candidates for that dubious honor. Paul evaluated his own heart his own life, and he considered that he was the foremost. And I think the reason it's worded that way is, is not so that we would look at it and go, wow, God saved Paul, who was literally the worst human being that ever lived. I don't think that's the point. Because there have been plenty of people that have come after that we would maybe say, oh, oh they've got to be worse. right? Like that person, that, that dictator, that whatever it might be, well, they've got to be worse. I think it's written this way so that we understand this, is that there is no worst. It's that we all stand condemned guilty before God. But we love to compare to one another. We love to compare to one another. We love to look at it and go, well, I'm not as bad as that person, so, so, so I'm kind of in this middle ground. I'm, I'm okay. And what Paul is doing is he's not comparing to himself. He's comparing to Christ. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, we find ourselves completely and utterly hopeless to find salvation. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I attacked Jesus. Before he understood who Jesus really was, he threw people in prison. He signed the death warrants of people. He persecuted the church. And then he had this amazing experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life radically changed. And he understood that there was nothing in him that deserved salvation because he was comparing himself to the richness of Christ, not compared to somebody else. His whole life up to that point had been being compared to someone else. As a Pharisee, it was, it was how good can I be? Well, how good can I be compared to what? It's not compared to the law, because if you compare it to the law, everybody stands guilty. 
It's compared to the next Pharisee or the next religious leader, the next Sadducee or whoever it might be. And so then, then you can feel a little bit better about yourself. And if you see someone who may be, oh, okay, they're a, little, they're a little better than I am, then we can work that much harder. What the cross of Jesus does is it stops us in our tracks from any kind of a works-based idea of salvation because I stand guilty before him. And yet he loves me, and yet he saved Paul, and he used Paul in, in incredible ways. And the scripture is the story of redemption. So many characters that we find in it, God takes and he uses for his good, even though there's no reason that God should have used him. You look at the judges. Many of the judges were not exactly these wonderful moral characters. You think of, and I don't know how we have done this. Uh, one of the podcasts I was listening to talked about this. Samson. We use Samson as this like story in Sunday school, right? Of like, yeah, you can do anything. You can be real strong. Samson's like one of the worst morally. He's just he's a sex addict. He's violent and he's angry and he wants to kill people all the time. And and yet God, in His grace, chooses to use him. God can use everyone because no one is outside of the scope of God's mercy. Uh, Augustine said it this way. Uh, Sorry, let me just find it here. Augustine said it this way. God does not choose a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing him, he makes him worthy. Simply by the act of God choosing us, we become worthy. We haven't even done anything. And all of a sudden, God says, no, I'm going to use you. One of my pet peeves uh, in, in kind of all of uh, kind of biblical stuff is, is this idea of the story of Gideon. If you're not familiar with Gideon, God says he's going to use Gideon, and he's kind of this very uh, unconfident in, in what God's called him to do. Uh, he just doesn't think he can do it. And so God says, Gideon, I'm going to do this. And he goes, no, 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 that, that doesn't even make sense. And so he says, so I'm going to, I'm going to lay this, this fleece out on the grass, and, and if the fleece is dry but the grass is wet, then I'll know because that is weird and that wouldn't happen. Then I'll know that you're doing it and that you're in this. And so God does that. And then, ah, but just one more time. I'm really not convinced. And so then he kind of asks for the reverse order of that to happen. And it happens. And and then he's like, oh, okay, I guess I have to do it. But he's just doubting the whole time. And then now in our Christian vernacular, we have this lovely phrase where we say all the time, I'm just going to throw a fleece out. The whole point of the story is Gideon's lack of trust in God. Not that it's good to throw your fleece out so that God can prove to you. We should just trust God because he's trustworthy. Because he can save us, not because we can save us, but because he can save us. Verse 16 then, this last, this last idea here that Paul's trying to show Timothy is that we are meant to declare God's goodness to the world. So verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So this is a verse that I think so often we just kind of go right over, but there's so much truth to unpack in this. Is How many times have we had a conversation with somebody and they'll, and they'll say, I don't know why God has allowed me to live. Or, or I don't understand why God would even offer me mercy. Well, it says right here. The answer is given to us so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. My life exists to declare to everyone 
that God can save anybody. That's what my life exists for. And so if I understand that, then I'm going to look at this and I'm going to go, man, I, I want to become uh, someone who is concerned about discipleship because that's what my life exists, is to show others how awesome God is. So notice who's the main character in that. Not me. It's God. My life is to point to him. So my life is literally not about showing people how talented I think I am or how skilled I might be at something or how charismatic I think I might be or any of that stuff. That's all about me. My life is to show, look, let me say it this way. Look at that crazy dude who has no ability to do any of that and yet look what God has done. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the abilities and the skills that God has given us, not at all. But I'm trying to say we're supposed to use those for his kingdom so that when people see us and hear us and experience life with us, they go, man, I don't get it. How is God doing this? Because then the finger is pointed at God and not about us. We exist to be the best apologetic so that the world might see who Christ is. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5:16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let me ask you this question as we close. How are you living your life? How am I living my life? Am I realizing that my life is meant to point others to Christ. How am I going to do that? Well, again, it's not about the things we can do. It's about the finger where we point it to. So when people come to us and they say, what's my purpose? You seem to have purpose. You seem to have peace. You seem to have hope. Uh, how do I get that? We don't just give them another self-help book. We don't give them confidence for dummies. We point them to the scripture and we say, you will find purpose and meaning in Christ and in Christ alone. Everything else that this world has to offer us will only satisfy us temporarily. And I think the older we get, the shorter those temporary things seem to last. And the more we see the need of Christ. So how can we do that in our lives? I think it's simple. I think we'd be honest, we'd be vulnerable, we'd be authentic. And we show people that I don't have it all together. And this, this weekend is a perfect example of that. I'm, I know I've written this thing by Friday night and by Saturday I'm going, God, I, I don't even know what to do today. This morning comes and I don't have the energy for this. I don't, and God goes, exactly. It's not about you, Greg. It's about me. So would we understand would we look at this and would we realize that my life is meant to point others to Christ? So let's disciple one another through our messy and difficult lives that have plenty of ups and have maybe just as many downs. And let's be real with one another and show that it's all in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you... I, I can't even understand the depth of your grace and your love and your mercy for me and for each one of us. God, why you would choose to use us to represent your name to the world. Paul calls it a mystery. But it's 
what a blessing it is that we can be your ambassadors on this earth to point others to you so that they might come to faith in Jesus Christ. God, would you help us to understand that while we do have jobs and families and responsibilities, that all of those things are meant to be in the context of you as the most important thing in our life. That we would point others to you by how we conduct ourselves. So God, for those here this morning who run a business or, or uh, work in a, in a place where maybe it's difficult to, to proclaim your name, would the way that they act and they live and the way that they talk show others that there's something different? There's something unique, that there's something outside of themselves here so that they would see our works and they wouldn't glorify us, but that they would glorify you in heaven. God, would you give us the strength to live for you today? God, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives. God, for those who are going through difficulty right now, would you be at work in their hearts and in their minds? Would you give them the grace that they need? As we read here, that that, that grace superflows right over top of us, that it affects every part of our life. May we see it. God, we love you and we thank you. As we're about to take communion now together, would these moments remind us the cross of Christ. May it remind us of our unworthiness and yet your desire to choose us and make us worthy. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen. If you want to flip back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to read a few verses here from it. I'm going to invite uh, the elders up now. And if, if this is a, a, a new thing to you, uh, communion, uh, what we're doing is we're passing out these two elements, one which represents Christ's body and one that represents Christ's blood. And the reason we do this is because we, we want to slow our lives down and we want to realize the price that Christ had to pay for our salvation. That he was willing to do that for us because life can get busy and hectic and we can forget. And so we need to remember this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul writes this to us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul writes this because there's a group of people that aren't considering what they're about to do. When we gather together and when we open God's word, and that's why I explained it the way I did, that these are God's words, not mine. 
is this should cause us to slow down and, and, and evaluate and look at our own hearts and our lives and realize, man, I do not deserve God's grace and God's mercy. And yet he has poured it out on me. The more we think about that, I think the less our external pressures become. My difficulties of this weekend and, and the challenges that were in front of me, they seemed huge because that's all I was thinking about. But when I focus on Christ and what's truly important, those difficulties are still there. Those challenges are still there. The illness might still be there. The grief might still be there. But those things lessen in their intensity because our focus is right and it's on Christ. So let me pray. And as we hand out um, what represents the body of Christ, let's just do exactly what Paul said. Let's evaluate our hearts and our minds. Let's slow down and let's thank God for the depth of his love for us that he sent Jesus to the cross. And let's eat in a worthy manner, focused on him. God, as we seek to pass this bread out now, which represents your body broken for us. God, we are so unworthy, so undeserving of your love, and yet you have poured it out on us so immensely. Would that change our hearts and our minds as Paul described his radical transformation that comes from the gospel? Would our lives transform day by day? And so as we hold uh, this element in our hands over the next few moments, and as we get ready to eat together, would we remember the depth of your love for us? And that as Augustine said, that, that we are not worthy, but because you have chosen us, we have become worthy. God, what an amazing truth that is. So as we pass this around now, would we, would we consider these things? Amen.
This represents Christ's body, broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of that. God, as we pass out the cup now, and as we consider that there was only one possible way for salvation the blood of Jesus would we be reminded of your love for us that you were unwilling that we would die in our sins without a chance of redemption so God we believe that through Jesus' blood salvation is offered and we believe that according to scripture that all we need to do to accept that offer is to repent of our sins, to turn away from our old life, and to make you Lord and Savior moving forward. So God, we confess in these moments that we do not deserve salvation. But God, I pray that each one of us would understand that we can choose to follow you for the rest of our lives. God, thank you for the blood of Jesus. Amen.
cup represents Christ's blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, thank you for all that you have done in our lives and all that you continue to do. God, I pray for each one here this morning that you would be at work in their hearts and in their minds, that you would be transforming them through the power of the gospel. And that good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. God, if there's anybody here that does not know you, would they be seeking you? Would you give them the courage to ask the right questions? And would you give us the grace and the love to answer those questions in a way that honors you? God, as we go from this place and back to our normal routines and our jobs and our families and the various things that, that you have called us to each week, would we constantly be holding you high and very intentionally trying to declare to the world your goodness by how we live and how we act. That we would declare that there is no other hope other than in Jesus Christ. God, you alone are worthy. Would we live like we believe that? Amen. If you were visiting this morning with us, just a reminder, there are snacks just uh, around here through, through this door. Uh, and there's no rush to get out of here. We'd love to just chat and visit with you. Uh, thank you for coming and worshiping with us today.